morning. Um, today's scripture is from Genesis 1, 24 through 30. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give to you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with the seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. All right, thank you. Good morning. Everybody good? All right. Feeling, uh, I don't know. I already made a joke about getting a bunch of weight for the holidays, and I did, so here we are. Um, Good to see you guys. My name is Tommy, um, and uh, I'm the pastor here, and here's what we're doing today. We have been studying uh, the book of Matthew, which we are due to wrap up like late July, all right? Like six more months. I'm sorry. Like, we're coming in, we're clocking in just under three years in the book of Matthew. So, you should have no questions about how to read the book of Matthew and about how each and every little piece of it works and fits together in the story and the teachings of Christ. Um, However, as we move into the last 10 chapters, um, there is uh, sort of this darkness that descends over the the text, and it gets gets darker and darker. The... the, um, the pushback against Jesus uh, gets greater and greater and leading all the way up to the cross. Um, and so uh, what we're going to talk about today is, uh, is sort of maybe possibly what may be for you a new way to like think about all this. Um, I'm basically going to be, it dawned on me halfway through the last sermon that like, that like this, is, this is sort of, a, sort of a hermeneutics class, okay? This is about, if you know what hermeneutics is, it's, it's about how to read the Bible. Um, it's about like, we all have a picture in our heads of the story of the Bible, and then when you go to read it, you're basically projecting your story in your head onto the text. Um, so today, I guess I'm teaching a bit of hermeneutics, um, and here's what we're going to do. Um, this is going to be a two-week sort of sermon series, and I don't normally do series, but we're going to take two weeks, and we're going to talk about what I'm going to call the cosmic hierarchy, okay? And it's going to hopefully give you a way to read the Old Testament, the New Testament, the entirety of scriptures, um, because here's the problem. Um, there is, it has become very commonplace in modern evangelicalism to tell the story of God, tell the story of the Bible, give gospel presentations, teach from Genesis uh, up through the prophets, um, all the way into the New Testament gospels, and then all the way to the book of Revelation. It has been very commonplace to teach all of this without actually mentioning the kingdom of God, um, without actually talking about a king and a kingdom. And it has been very 
commonplace in the last 150 years or so, really the last 500 years, to talk about um, the gospel and present a gospel presentation or a gospel message and invite people to take part in the gospel without a mention of the kingdom of God, without a mention of a king at all and citizens of that king. For the, for the ancient writers of scriptures, this was impossible. Uh, for the early church, this was impossible. Oftentimes today, if there is a mention of the kingdom of God, it's oftentimes done in a way that sort of, it paints this picture here, uh, illustrate it nicely, uh, of like sort of Plato, Gnosticism, sort of like this flying away. There's a lot of clouds. Everyone's wearing robes. There's naked babies with wings. Um, and there is, there's just this general like, it's not earth, okay? It, it's not it's almost like, in the end, we'll like forget that earth ever happened kind of thing. And that's the picture oftentimes being painted um, when people talk about the kingdom of God. That is not in the mind of the ancient people, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not strictly a post-life, post-mortem um, existence somewhere else. The kingdom of God is at the very beginning of scriptures. It is, it is it is behind the entire thing. It is, I would argue, the base note of the entire Bible. And here's what I mean. If you ever listen to classical music or, or really any band in general, there's this movement, but especially in classical music, because classical music doesn't necessarily repeat itself a lot. It doesn't have to. It's telling a story, okay? Um, and as you move through sort of a classical like concerto or something, there's, there's movements, all kinds of instruments playing all kinds of things, go, taking you on a journey, but underneath it all, there is this bass note that is holding the song together and that likely is repetitive. The bass note alone is repeating while everything else moves and dances. And the bass note is what keeps the story from becoming a story about something else. Okay? A lot of people, when they read the scriptures, what they see is lots of disconnected stories with no bass note. And they don't see it. Um, there's, there's pastors today who say you can just ignore the Old Testament. What we focus on is the New Testament. I think that's, that's silly. It's impossible. Uh, and the original Christians would never ignore the Old Testament. It has this bass note of a kingdom moving all the way through the whole thing. Today we're going to talk about that. I'm going to give you a picture sort of what this looks like. And give you something to keep in your mind as you read the scriptures. Okay? Um, so... Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start by laying out today what I see as the intended order of creation um, laid out in the book of Genesis. And um, I'm going to lay out sort of the individual parts of, of creation, if you will. And then next week, I'm going to sort of recast the vision of what, what is t- traditionally called the fall. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about sin, um, um, God's plan to set things right, all of that. And we're going, to, we're going to build sort of a cohesive picture of all of this. So that as we jump back into the story of Matthew and Jesus heading towards the cross, we can see what this is all heading towards, where it came from and where it's heading towards, and we can have a cohesive vision, okay? Now, are you with me? Okay, you, okay good. I'm trying not to lose people as I move through this thing. So, um, why don't we open up a word of prayer here? Short intro. <laughs> and let's pray. And then, uh, and then uh, I'm, I'm going to jump right into this. Let's pray. Father... As we open this ancient text, as we read it, I ask that you would give us not just knowledge, but wisdom. Help us to be able to um, see how the things that we are learning, how the things that we're grasping, and the information we're receiving. Um, Help us to see how that information plays a part in our lives. May our theology uh, uh, take shape in the actions of our lives. May we understand the cosmic story of the ancient people so that when we read their text, we can understand it. Um, We can understand what we are doing here, what our purpose is, um, and what you intend to do with this world. In all of this, may we find joy and peace um, 
May we find healing and salvation and forgiveness. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Now, um, if we want to understand the message of Jesus in a way that, finds, uh, that, that stays true to, its own sort of to, to Jesus' own view of himself, let me pause there. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus, Jesus had a view of the world. Jesus had a particular view of the scriptures. Um, the early apostles had a particular way of viewing the world. Um, Paul had a particular way of viewing the world. Um, every Jewish person in the first century, which the early Christians were Jewish, um, they had a way of looking at things that, believe it or not, might be different than how you view the world 2,000 years later with everything else that has come to light and everything else we've sort of added to interpretation of the scriptures. Um, what we need to do is, is, is learn to read the Bible and ask the same questions that the original readers were asking. What questions were they asking? Um, and so uh, there's been several people that have tackled these, these topics. Um, one of them, obviously, is, is N.T. Wright's done a lot of work on this. There's a guy named Scott McKnight. Um, he's a, a professor of, of Northern Seminary. He's a, he's a New Testament scholar. He's written over 85 books on the New Testament. So when he, he wrote a book recently called Kingdom, Kingdom Conspiracy, and in this book, he, he, he writes down and lays out sort of what we understand to be the four questions the writers of Scripture were asking and the four answers they were giving. Um, by the way, Scott McKnight is, is coming here in March. He's going to be speaking here to you. So that's going to be awesome. Uh, he's one of my heroes of theology of all time. Okay, so anyways. Um, so, first question that the ancient writers of the text were asking is, who are we? And the answer they're saying is, we are Israel, the chosen people of the creator God. Okay, a specific God, the creator God. Um, where are we? Um, this is location, geography. It's not philosophical. Where are we? It's not that. Um, where are we? Literally, uh, we are in the Holy Land, Israel. But paradoxically, we are still in exile. We're here, but things are not as they should be. We are still in some sort of exile. We, we don't have, we're not ruled by a Davidic king. We, all, all kinds of things uh, basically um, needed to happen for them to be out of exile. And some of them had not happened. Question three and four are really important. And that's what we're going to focus on today. What is wrong? What is wrong with, with everything um, we know things are wrong. What exactly is it? Can we pinpoint it? And the answer that they propose is we have the wrong rulers. What is the solution? Our God must act again to give us uh, the true sort of rule, that is, his own kingship. So, question three and four are vital to understanding how to read the entirety of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It is one cohesive um, story. It is one cohesive argument and text. Um, what is wrong? We're following the wrong people. We have the wrong kings. What is the solution? Um, God is going to act, to act to give us the right king so that things can be made whole again. Now, all of this uh, is found all through the text. I, I'm going to lay out a few passages here this week and a few passages next week to lay it out for you. We're going to start right here in, um, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse, verse 26, because there's something vital in here that you need to see. It starts off like this. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God has just finished, um, as the story goes, a seven-day sort of uh, creation, um, uh, a creation movement. All Every day there is, there's new things sort of being added to, to all of creation in the world. Uh, and the last day, all of creation is crowned with human beings. Um, and there's several things that you can see in the text. There, there seems to be an order. Let me underline a few things here. There is not just an order. There is a vocation 
and there is an office that human beings are given that nothing else is given. Um, so the vocation you can see right here, so that they may rule. That is the job of human beings to rule. And we're going to talk about what that means in a few minutes. Uh, but that is a vocation to rule over what? Over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, livestock, wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Um, and we are given specific jobs, till the garden, work the garden. Um, there's a word that is used called dasha that we use sometimes in our baptism services. It is a word that means um, uh, everything creating something in its own, like reproduction, things multiplying and, and growth and moving forward. There is this progression built into creation that things create more of their own kind. Um, and humans are put here to guide all of this. Now, um, what gives human beings a vocation um, is the office that they are created in. Let us make mankind in our image. Human beings are the only thing in all of creation that is given a job, a vocation, and an office. Nothing else is. It's just like, here's some birds that can fly, here's some fish that can swim, here's some cows that can eat stuff. And human beings now, we're going to make them a certain way, we're going to give them an office, we're going to give them a job to do. And, and we are the only ones in the text that is given a specific job to do, and an office to hold. Now, um, Old Testament scholar C.J.H. Wright, he says this, um, it is not that having dominion is what constitutes the image of God, but rather that exercising dominion is what being made in God's image enables and entitles us to do. What gives us a specific vocation is the fact that we are made in the image of God. That may not make a lot of sense to you right now. Give me a few minutes. Hopefully it will. So um, we go back to we go back to here. We can see um, there's, there's this movement from they're made in the image of God. And it is because they have an image of God that they have a specific job to do. Uh, for the ancient peoples, this was easy completely to understand. First off, there's this word rule. Um, it is this ancient Hebrew word rada. Everyone say rada. Okay. Now, uh, that is an ancient Hebrew word which basically constitutes a passing of delegated authority from a king. Uh, I define it like this. A king passing a delegated form of the king's own authority over to another. So the king is on his throne, a scepter, a crown, the whole nine, and there's someone there with the king who serves the king, and the king uh, sort of gives the scepter to um, his sort of right-hand guy here and says, I'm going to give you some of my delegated authority, a job that I'm responsible for, I'm going to give it to you to do. And you will go forth and you will be me there and do these things there that I have for you to do. It is delegated authority. Our job to rule over everything, sort of, you are here, you have a status, everything below your status, you rule over and you take care of. And we're going to talk about what that means in a little bit. Um, in the ancient world, this makes perfect sense, if this, especially if you go back to ancient Egypt around the time when this conversation is being had, when these stories are being written and told and being passed through oral tradition. Um, and in the ancient world, it was common, common uh, in ancient times for a king to commission statues of himself to be carved and placed throughout the kingdom, all the way to the ends of the kingdom, of the known kingdom of the king. Um, we've all seen these like in, in National Geographic and on the internet pictures of, of these ancient kings and Ramses and the pharaohs and these ancient statues are still standing all over ancient Egypt. Um, now, these statues were commissioned by a king when he became the king um, and, and took control of a huge kingdom and new land. He would commission statues be built from the dust of the earth 
And these statues built from the dust of the earth would be placed all over the kingdom. And these statues served several purposes. Um, one of the reasons was that, they, that this would be done is so the people could see what the king looks like. Um, the general makeup of the king. When they look at these things, you, when you look at the statue of Ramses here, you would say, oh, so I can, get, I can generally gather what Ramses look like. And not only that, but you can see the pillars um, around them with hieroglyphs all over them. You can see on their tunics they have hieroglyphs. There is a story being told by these things. And when you look at them, you are to be reminded of who actually is king. It's not the statue. That is not the king. That is a representation of the king. It's what's called an icon of the king. It is made from the dust of the earth, just like Genesis 2 mentions um, mankind being made from. And says, it, it basically says, um, we know what the king wants. We know what the king looks like. We know what the king does when we look at these things. Um, in the story in Genesis, God has created from the dust a living, animated image of God and placed this image in the kingdom um, to remind everyone what God looks like and to do the delegated work which we have specifically been given to do. So, from all of this, um, the hierarchy becomes easily recognizable, and I'm going to illustrate it here in a terrible drawing just for you, okay? Looks like this. This is the cosmic hierarchy. You can tell, obviously, that's, that's God. Um, king, yellow stuff coming up. Um, and here we have mankind in the middle, and down here you have the earth. This is, in the ancient mindset, in the, in the, in the, Jewish, in the Jewish mindset, when, when they are reading the Old Testament, and they are seeing the story of creation, it is a story about the hierarchy of the universe and how they are supposed to view how everything functions. This is what they see when they read the text. And as you move through the text, if you know what to look for, you will see this everywhere. Um, next week, I'm going to give you a few uh, illustrations of this. This week, I'm going to give you um, a pretty big illustration of this. I think the, um, the biggest illustration of this is, is found in the book of Exodus, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. But, um, so basically, the, 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 the hierarchy works like this. The king, the creator God, has taken control of a kingdom. He's created it. He's purged the chaos, created order. Things are moving forward through the laws and the ways that the king has put forward. And his crowned creation with human beings, with delegated authority and a specific job to do, to serve over everything and take care and guide um, to beauty and goodness, everything underneath them, in the place of the king, of God. Okay. Now, there's several things you can, you can glean from the text. Um, uh, the, the role of humankind is very simple. First off, maintaining God's presence, um, like being present in the world um, as God intends to be. Uh, second, creating more images of God to fill his kingdom, be fruitful and multiply, all that. Um, verse three, uh, I'm sorry, number three, submitting to God as king, recognizing that there is one king and one king alone. No one else should be ruling over God's people but God, Yahweh, okay? Uh, and number four, guiding creation forward into health and maturation. Um, uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, a different Wright altogether, uh, he says this, being in God's image is both about reflecting God into the world and about receiving and returning the divine love. Uh, the two go together. So uh, reflecting God into the world, that's the purpose that we are here for, reflecting divine love into the world. Um, and the relationship that we are created to be in is about receiving and returning divine love. We receive it from God and we pay it back and return that love, not just to God, but we pay it forward as well to all of creation. There is a way that you were created to exist and live, and this is it. Um, according to the text, 
according to the ancient people, when they speak of, of the universe and the cosmos um, and the order of all things, this is what they're talking about. And as long as this order is maintained, things will progress and be beautiful and good. And God said that it is good. And as long as the order is maintained, things will go right. Next week, we're going to talk about how things go wrong. Uh, we're going to talk about the fall. We're going to talk about the story in the text of, of when things began to go wrong and how exactly that fits into this. Now, um, a little farther with the role of humankind. If we have delegated authority from the king, you should easily be able to go, the, go to the Old Testament and look for places where it talks about the job of the king. And to see, okay, if this is the job of the king, then we know with our delegated authority, here's the things we are to do. It's very easy to see. If you flip to Psalm chapter 72, um, it's a very long text, but interspersed throughout this, it starts off with, endow the king with your justice. Um, so we can see it is a prayer for that, that Israel's king would be like a king, the way a king is supposed to be, the way God is king, okay? And there is a list of things that the king does, that the job of the king is. Here's what that looks like. May he judge your people with righteousness. To judge something um, is to pronounce what is good and what is bad, what should exist and what should not exist, the way things should be and the way things should not be. That's what judgment is, being able to look at something and saying, that is not the way of the king. This is. That is what it means to judge, okay? Um, may he defend the afflicted, uh, save the children of the needy, crush the oppressor, Deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. Take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Um, This is a detailed assignment list of the job of the king according to the ancient Jewish people. Um, And it, it extends to everybody whose status is lower than the king, by the way. That is why there are so many laws in the Torah about your treatment of animals. Um, there's even a passage in Proverbs 12 that is clear. The righteous care for the needs of their animals. Like, if, if you are here to care over everything underneath you, um, then you work for their flourishing, not their destruction, okay? So there's all kinds of ways in which this plays out. Progression, moving things forward, um, caring for the needy, all those who have less than you, caring and restoring them, all of it. It's all there, and this is how the ancient people viewed their own job as um, descendants of Abraham, as, as have, having a king who serves under God, um, and as, as we understand it now, as the people directly ruled by God, King Jesus. Um, these are the things that we should be taking part in. This is part of our vocation. Um, so, okay, I'm way off my notes here. Okay, so... Um, When you look at all of this, you can sort of see our role now. This cosmic hierarchy is the base note through which you, if you read the text, you can see it everywhere. The people saying constantly, we have the wrong kings. We have the wrong rulers. Um, Things are falling apart because we are not following the right kings. This is why idolatry is a constant, constant theme throughout the scriptures. Following anyone except for Jesus. Living by the laws of anyone except for King Jesus. Jesus, Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, um, and the early Christians argued this is Yahweh incarnate in the flesh. This is why Jesus is king. Next week, we're going to talk about how Jesus became that king. Um, It's a fascinating story. Now, um, so the cosmic hierarchy is the base note of the entire thing. If you look at the first five books of the Bible, they're called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five. Um, Jesus calls them the books of Moses, okay? Um, Now, when... When you read these, 
If you look for the cosmic hierarchy, you will see it everywhere. Um, let's look today at the book of Exodus. There is this uh, super well-known story, the most important story to the Jewish people, of their um, being enslaved by the Egyptians and being set free. And when you read this story through the lens of the cosmic hierarchy, through this hermeneutic, what you begin to see is that um, the story of the Exodus is not a story about slaves being set free necessarily. It is a story about two gods battling over God's people and who they will serve. Okay, And a lot of texts, a lot of stories in the Old Testament are about that. This one, it is clear as day. So um, here's how that works. Um, Pharaoh in the ancient world was viewed as a god. He was worshipped as a god, a particular god. He was worshipped as Re or Ra, depending on what time period you're reading, Um, the sun god. And um, the people worshipped him as a god. And, And this god, this king god, was also king of all of Egypt and was ruling over Yahweh God's people. And if you read the text, it says this in Exodus 1, 14. Um, the Egyptians, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar uh, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So this is the kind of king and ruler that, uh, that Ra, the Pharaoh, is. Okay. Um, if you read a little farther, you, you begin to see several times, you see the mentioning of Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, of, of, of Yahweh at this time as they, as they spoke of him. And Yahweh is constantly saying, I want you to let my people go so that, that, so that they can worship me. Um, Exodus 4.23, let my son go so that he may worship me. There's, there's constantly this message of let my people go. Why? So that they can worship me. Now, um, it seems interesting that he would want these people who are enslaved to be set free why? So that they can worship. Why, why not just so that they can be free? Well, that's in the text. There's a Hebrew word here. Um, the word is avad. Everyone say avad. Okay, now, that's a Hebrew. That's a Hebrew word that refers both to work and labor in verse 114. And it's a word that refers to worship in 423. It's the same word. So, what we have here is a choice to be made and a battle coming to head between the representation of Yahweh, the icon, the image of Yahweh, and the representation of Ra, the sun god, in Pharaoh, coming together and doing this sort of cosmic argument and battle. Um, and so the choice we are given is, it's whom will Israel avad? God, Pharaoh as slaves, or God, Yahweh as worshipers? So the ancient people are reading this text, and they see this huge story about both sides saying, no, they're going to avad me in chains, and they're going to serve me. It's going to be harsh and brutal. This is the kind of king he is. Um, and then Yahweh is saying, no, they're going to avad me, and it's going to be beautiful and joyful and worship. They're going to be so happy to serve me that it, it will cause them to worship. That's the kind of ruler I am. So in the book of Exodus, you see this constant argument. All other gods, all other kings of the earth are false rulers and false gods. Do not follow them. We follow Yahweh and Yahweh alone. All, every other ruler will put you in chains, and Yahweh will set you free. Every other ruler will make you miserable and constantly striving to give them more and more and more. But Yahweh will, give, will, will, will make you so joyful that you will worship. Okay? This is the message of Exodus. This is the message of the entirety of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible, over and over and over. Next week, we're going to look at a couple more of these. But um, here's what happens. 
So this battle ensues and these plagues start being rained down. And the whole time he says, let my people go so they can worship me. He says, no, they serve, they avad me. So these plagues start happening. It starts off with the Nile River turning to blood. The Nile River was worshipped as a god, as a king and a god. And the, the, the Egyptians were not monotheistic. They, they believed in tons and tons of gods. Um, the Nile River was worshipped. And what happens? God turns it to blood. The Nile is dead. God has killed it. He killed one of your gods, one of your kings. And then what happens? Um, well, after that, they're just sort of all lined up and they begin to be knocked down. There is this uh, goddess of childbirth named Heket that they worshipped who was depicted as the head of a frog, right? And God's like, I control that. Frogs everywhere, just, just hopping everywhere. You're crushing them, you're stepping on them, you're trying to kill them, you're getting them out. They're in your drink. Um, and, then, and then there's this mother goddess, Hathor, depicted as a cow, and God strikes the cows dead. Okay, and then there is this, this God named Seth. He's the God of storms. And what does God do? Rains down hail on top of Egypt. Um, and then Pharaoh himself, depicted as in ancient times Ra, the sun god, is blotted out. The gods of ancient Egypt, these ancient gods and kings, are all lined up and they're all knocked down as a way of saying, our God is the true God and king above all other kings. And these kings and gods should not exist. People should directly follow me. And when they do, they will find joy. And so with every single plague that is dished out upon Egypt, there is a constant reminder. Here's all the references to it. Um, And it says this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And it'll say that I am king or that I am the ruler. This is how they will know. The point of the story is is not punishment. God is not setting out to punish necessarily Egypt and the Pharaoh for enslaving people. He's not punishing them. He's enlightening all of Egypt that Pharaoh's not really God. He's not really, you don't actually need to follow this guy. He is somebody who is easily knocked down and destroyed. Okay? So, this is enlightenment, not punishment. And why? So that the people will know that I am God. I am the king. I am the Lord. And then, God leads his people out into the desert, and they're walking through the desert, and they're hungry and they're thirsty, and God provides for them over and over. They find bitter water, and God makes it clean, and then they find water coming up out of rocks and wells, and a well's traveling with them, according to uh, Paul. And then there is, there is um, fowl flying down that they can eat, and there's manna in the morning, and every single day it is new food, new food, new food. Why? Over and over again, it says, Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. And every time God gives them something, he says, this is so that you will know who is actually God, who is king. That all these other kings who are claiming to be king should not exist. They exist against me. I am the king. And every time God provides for them in the biblical text, the people see that it is a sign of who is actually king above all others and who they should be following. So, as you move through the text, this is what you see over and over and over again. The kingdom of God is not some far off future distant thing. Jesus himself said the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. Um, It is possible to be a part of it now, to take part in it. It was at the beginning, it will be at the end, and it is right now. And if you see it, you can take part in it. So here's, here's the thing. It is the setting, it is the story from Genesis to Revelation. And the problem is, there's lots of people whose understanding of the gospel 
and their proclamation of the gospel has nothing to do with a king and a kingdom. But in fact, Christians, if nothing else, Christians are, they can be defined as um, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven who are all around the world in every, in every country, existing in these countries as, as Paul would say, resident aliens who all follow one king. We have no military. We have no earthly ruler. We follow Jesus. We serve the God of angel armies. We don't have a flag that we wave. His banner over us is love. This is how the, the scriptures talk about God and us and our role. Okay? And it kind of helps you put into perspective how we should live in these earthly kingdoms. And it kind of, as you move through your day and you think about the decisions that you're making, it kind of begins to wake you up. Because here's the thing. Um, the gospel is the simple proclamation. When people ask me, what is the gospel? Define the gospel. The gospel to me simply is um, the crucified, buried, and risen Jesus is now and forever the king of all. And they hear that and they're like, well, I don't get it. What does that mean? The reason you don't get it is because we have been told for a long time a kingless message, a kingdomless message, and we've redefined everything away so that you now have no vocation other than to go around getting people to pray prayers for your whole life and then fly away as the whole thing burns, as the Titanic sinks. And by the way, they say it's God sinking the Titanic. Okay. The kingdom of God is the goal. It's what was, it is what will be. It is what we are working with God to establish every single day. Evangelism is the invitation to join the kingdom, to follow, to reject the old gods, the old kings, and follow the new king as a citizen of the kingdom of God. We call them Christians, okay? Um, it, is an, it means little Christs. Sort of like this idea of the delegated authority thing. Like we have a job to do. And here's another thing you need to understand. Um, every other king, every other ruler, every other authority is simply a parody of, what, of which Jesus is the reality. They are all telling you the things that God has promised you. But they cannot deliver. Here's the way to peace. Here's the way to success. Here's the way um, to sort of set everything to rights again. Maybe we need a bigger military. Maybe we need better trade agreements. Maybe we need more laws that do this and this and this and this. And if we do this, we can finally achieve world peace and we can finally set things to rights again. That is a parody of what Jesus is the reality, of what Yahweh was always telling you. I created the world to be a certain way. All these other kings are simple parodies. They are not real. I am real. And they're all trying to attain what God attained in the beginning that we broke, that he's saying, I know you broke it. I'm inviting you to help me fix it. I'm gonna fix it anyways. I'm inviting you to take part in it. Why? Because you were created to do this, which also means every single vocation in this world, every job you do, everything that people are telling you, this is what you were born to do, or I'm just looking for that thing that makes me happy, that fulfills me. Every single vocation in this world is a parody of the vocation God has given you at the very beginning. The reason you find in some jobs a lot of pleasure and, and, and a lot of meaning is probably because you're helping people, um, you're setting things, some little things to write, some people are being blessed or fed or advised in good things, things that will help them flourish. That is all stuff that you were created to do. It is a little tiny piece 
of this grand vocation that you have been given. And so when you do it now, you should have this understanding of like, yeah, this is part of what I'm here to do. Also, some people have jobs where they work for companies that they know are actually working against the vocation of humanity and, and the cosmic hierarchy and the order that God has put in the universe. They know that their company that they work for, the people above them, um, are breaking things and ruining things and hurting people and taking advantage of people. And they go to work every day and they're miserable. And they hate what they do. And the reason they hate what they do is because it is in direct contradiction to what God has created them to do. That is why they're miserable. And by the way, everyone else at the company is miserable too, no matter how happy they act, because they were not created to live like this. We were all created um, to exist in ways that are generous to those below us, that lift them up, that care for them, not just human beings, but animals, the environment, all of it. There is a, a job that you were put here to do. And every time you touch on that, you are touching on the vocation of all of humankind. It is a divine gift that you were created with, a divine order. Why? Because you were made in the image of God to be the presence of God in this place. That is what all of this is about. Next week, we're going to talk about how this goes wrong, how the fall happened, how it continues to happen every single day. These stories are not meant to just be read, read once and say, well, that happened then. These stories are meant to be read and said, now, look around and look at all the places that that is happening now. And you can clearly see it. So that's what we're going to do next week. Um, I'm going to wrap this one up right here today. I'm going to invite our communion servers to go and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, And while we take communion today, um, I want to invite you to ponder your king and your vocation. Is... Is Jesus really your king? Or are you making Jesus serve some other king here in this world? Wealth, prosperity, politics, anything. Second, I want you to think about your own vocation. The way you live your life. Does it have anything to do with the cosmic hierarchy? With the vocation and the office that you were created to hold? Is there any point throughout your day which you actually truly pour yourself out for someone else? Um... And let's ponder these things together. If you need to spend time in repentance, do so. If you need prayer, right through these doors on the left, there will be someone there to pray with you, um, to listen to you, um, to talk to you, and to help give you guidance. Um, For now, we're going to take communion. It's something we do every single time we gather together. There are two elements. There is bread and there is wine. Um, And uh, everyone who is here is welcome to take communion. Um, And it's a simple, simple message. No matter how holy you are, or how pious you are, or how great things are going for you, no matter how sinful you are, no matter how much stuff you have broken, or how much you have been rejected, when we come to the table, we all receive the same thing. The body of Christ has been broken for you. The blood of Christ has been spilled for you, for your healing, for your wholeness, so that you could find your true purpose in this world again. Let's pray, and let's take communion together, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and this people. Make us holy. Help us to live lives that are, uh, that, are, that are filled with purpose, not just any purpose, but the purpose that you created us to have. The unifying vocation of humanity. Working to restore all things that are broken. Um, 
working to bring the entire world under a single king of love and mercy and justice, inviting people to take part in the goodness that you offer us. Help us to be a church that is a city on a hill that people can look at and say, um, they seem to have something that I'm missing. And let us find a way to give that to them. We love you, Father. We, we now take some time in communion and we repent. Guide us. In your name, amen. Talk to Jesus.